So look with me at Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies my footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? Now, as we open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews this morning, it's vitally important, if we're going to understand this book, that it be understood in terms of who it was written to as well. It is on. So if you would, we'll, we'll press on here and let him work me over while we do it. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about the background of this book, just very briefly. The date of the book is probably in the area of 60 to 70 AD. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified around 30 or so uh, AD, and uh, the first books of the Bible were written, Thessalonians, for example, around 51 AD. But uh, the book of Hebrews came probably between 60 and 70 A.D. It certainly had to come before the destruction of the temple by Titus and the Romans in 70 A.D. because the book assumes that the temple worship is still going on. In fact, this is a major issue that we'll talk about in just a moment. The author of the book is unknown. Uh, people joke a lot about what they believe about the author of the book, but the only possibility that's been taken seriously by anybody is the Apostle Paul, that he may very well have written this book. There are some portions of the book that reflect his style. 
Uh, he doesn't identify himself, which is unusual for Paul. And as you notice at the beginning of the book, there is no, no salutation, as we usually find in the epistles of the New Testament. And so it makes us wonder for sure if it was Paul, but yet there's a reference to Timothy, if it's the same Timothy in chapter 13, and uh, it appears that Paul, the person who had this, had to be a person who was well introduced to Jewish doctrine and tradition. The addressees is the important thing if you're going to really understand this book. Well, many of us don't think in terms of the reality of history when it comes to the Bible, but we have to look at historical settings, uh, historical events to understand the concept. We, we interpret the Bible historically as a literal historical account. And when we do that, we find that in the early church, there was a large majority of former Jews, former Hebrews. Now, if you go back in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, you'll find on that day of Pentecost that some amazing things took place. And uh, the, the apostles, not the 120, but the apostles spoke in tongues and had flames of fire come down upon their head. And uh, it says everyone heard them in their own language. And it says here uh, in chapter 2, verse 5, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. It was Pentecost. That's an Old Testament feast day. And Jews had come from all over the world to that feast day, to honor that feast day. And they spoke in a multitude of languages. Now, when this was noised around, the multitude came together and were confounded because they heard every man his own language. Now, some people have said that the... Uh, the what was being said there in the foreign tongues was the gospel was being given to these people. But that is not what the text says. The text says that they were speaking the wonderful works of God. But when Peter got up, he spoke in a language that everyone could understand. It's like today, you go to many places in the world and they speak a different language. But there is a lingua franca in the world in many different places. In a large part of the world, it's English. So if I had a multitude of people who here spoken different languages and I wanted to address you all at the same time, I would perhaps speak in English that you would all have a pretty good understanding of. So he spoke in Aramaic and they could all hear him and he presented to them the gospel. And it tells there was a tremendous response to the gospel because in chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Then they that gladly received his word, that's Peter's preaching, were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That's the very same day when the apostles stood up before them with the cloven tongues. And that 3,000, no doubt, includes Jews of the immediate area of Jerusalem, but also Jews who had come there for Pentecost who spoke many different languages and who then returned home. Uh, you wonder sometimes what they had to used as a scripture to give testimony in that early church were tremendously privileged to have the New Testament. But these 3,000 went out, and immediately upon the day of Pentecost, as the church was founded, it was possible not only for Jews to become Christians or Hebrews, but it was possible for Gentiles to become saved and become a part of the body of Christ as intimate in their relationship to God as a Jew would be. Whereas in the Old Testament, they had to come as proselytes, kind of second-rate citizens, as you might say. And so now the door had been opened to Gentiles, but that wasn't completely clear to everybody yet. And it took a period of time for people to adjust and for Gentiles to begin to come into the church. 
Some people estimate that the church was primarily Jewish for 15 years after Pentecost. That sounds a little bit long. And I have the verses in the notes to go through to show you how the Gentiles gradually were introduced to the church and absorbed into the church along with those who had been Jewish believers. If that had not happened, the church would have perhaps died uh, of lack of growth because it just would have been another Jewish cult. But it wasn't. It wasn't because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of God that the gospel went forth and Gentiles as well as Jews were saved. And so as time went by, the church became primarily Gentiles, as we said before. But there was a significant number of people in the church who were Jewish, who were Hebrew, who had been believers under the Hebrew system of the Old Testament, under the Israelite national system. And now these people were faced with a new teaching about a Savior who had fulfilled all the shadows and prophecies of the past. And uh, if you look at your notes, you'll find that we've identified three groups of people. Actually, as I look at these, these three groups exist in just about any group of people who you might be preaching to here or anywhere. Look at these three groups. Number one, Hebrew Christians. Hebrew Christians, genuine believers, who because of persecution and whatever other reason, were weak in the faith. They, they were not growing as they should grow. So we have believers who are weak in the faith. And then, of course, we have believers who are strong in the faith, which are not listed with these three. But believers who are weak in the faith. And then second of all, you had Hebrew non-Christians who are intellectually convinced only. In other words, they believe that Jesus Christ lived, that he died on the cross, that he was resurrected to the, from the dead. And they know about the events of Pentecost, but to them it's an intellectual thing. It's something they know, but they haven't acted upon it. They haven't put their trust in Christ. It's just an intellectual kind of knowledge. And then the third group is, of course, unbelievers, Hebrew non-Christians who were not convinced about the truth of the resurrection and salvation grace of God through Jesus Christ. I want to keep in mind as we look at the book of Hebrews, of these three are actually four groups, including the believers who were faithful, and see how it helps us to understand what the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to communicate to this very special group of people, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. And then the theme of the book, better everything, better everything. Everything in the new covenant makes it better from what it was in the old covenant. The old covenant, of course, being the covenant of the law made with Moses on Sinai, and the new covenant being the new covenant in the blood of Christ set forth on the night before the crucifixion, the church new covenant. In this epistle one has written, contrast reigns. Everything presented is presented as better. A better hope, a better testament, a better promise, a better sacrifice, a better substance, a better country, a better resurrection, a better everything. Jesus Christ is presented here as the supreme best. Jesus Christ is the best of the best. We so often get distracted from our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ by some other idol, false idol, that we make in our mind. But Jesus Christ is the best of the best. In fact, if you look through the book, you'll find that this 
term of best or better occurs several times in the book. There are, in fact, uh, three different Greek words which express this idea. Uh, one of them speaks of being very much the best. One of them thinks just of being better. What's interesting, when you look at verse 4, as we begin the second section of the book, it says, Jesus, referring to Jesus, being made so much better. That combines two of the words in one expression, so that so much better. To try to communicate the superiority of believing and trusting in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the old covenant. If we had a theme verse, we would look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, which reads like this. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty, that's God, in the heavens. Jesus Christ, the intercessor, the high priest, who there makes intercession for us today. Now, as I open the book of Hebrews and begin to think about preaching this book, and Pastor Wesco and I had some different conversations, I, I found out that after 40 years of having graduated from seminary, I had a new homiletics professor. And he's a great one, too. He, uh, he gives me a lot of good counsel, and I hope my counsel to him is good. But he said, you know, we, we need to preach this and kind of not get too tied down on a few verses, but try to get a, a bigger picture. And so we're going to try to go through the book a little bit quicker and uh, overview some things. And I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I think it's going to work out very good. And I want to say now that beginning in verse 4 through the end of the chapter is the arguments presented, very amazingly, that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Superior to the angels. If you look a little bit ahead here, uh, down to verse 7, it says, And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Who, in other words, is saying, uh, asking the question, who, who, who makes them? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is superior to angels because he made angels. It says, that He maketh his angels spirits. Well, the word for spirits there could be the, the word for wind. And, and so angels uh, are not seen. They travel fast. They have amazing abilities as we observe them through Scripture. And then they're described here as ministers of fire, a flame of fire. That portrays God's judgment. And many times in Scripture, angels are so powerful, they're given special power by God so that they have power that makes it seem like they're almost God. Remember in the Exodus at the Passover, the death angel came? And a great plague of death came upon the people of Egypt. Well, that has caused people at some times to look at these beings who are so powerful as if they were God to make that mistake. And so the book of Hebrews is setting forth here, especially to Hebrew believers and people of a Hebrew background who may be struggling with their faith. He's setting forth the truth here that Jesus Christ is superior to angels. Now, if you look at your notes, you'll find that I have... Uh, followed through on that study. And uh, the author uses seven quotations from the Old Testament to convey the deity, sovereignty, and authority of Jesus Christ in contrast to angels who are merely ministering spirits ready to do God's will. I want you to notice the wisdom here and how these verses are presented. The writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
makes his appeal to Hellenistic Jewish believers using the Old Testament scriptures, which is their Bible. He's going to use their Bible to try to prove his point to them. And so in this series of studies, it begins in verse 4 and goes through the end of the chapter, there are seven quotations from the Old Testament, which he now expands in the New Testament to show how they confirm that Jesus Christ is superior to angels. In fact, confirm that Jesus Christ is indeed God. But we're not going to look at those. Will you believe it? Turn the page. We're going to skip half the sermon this morning. Amen. I heard amen. Turn to the page that says, returning then to Hebrews 1.1. This is the reason. All scripture is profitable and important, and no scripture is any less or more important than the other. It's all very important. But the ideas I really want to make sure you get are in verses 1 to 3. And I've given you the outline and information from verse 4 to the following to the end of the chapter. And so you can look at that. By the way, if you don't do some study on your own, in your own way, at home, in the privacy of your own room, you're not going to grow. It's not enough to listen to sermons. Sometimes we are even dozing in sermons. I do too. But we need to open God's word and think about it. So I hope you take these notes, especially in the last part of this chapter, and not just lay them aside, but review them and meditate and think upon them as the notes we're about to look at. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. What is so special about them? God, who at sundry times, in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Father in heaven, what a tremendous statement of your person is found in these introductory verses of Hebrews. As we look at these verses and this description of our Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to examine ourselves, to understand the privilege that this person, the Son of God, the privilege of being able to know him and pray to him and be his child and be his sheep, as Brother Densmore showed this morning. Lord, take these words and speak to our hearts. Teach us the way you would have us to go. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Hebrews is unusual, as I said before, as we open it because it doesn't have the typical salutation in the introduction of an epistle of the New Testament. As you read through it, though, and you come to the end, you find that it is intended to be an epistle. But when the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, began to write the book of Hebrews, he wanted to get right into the meat. He didn't want to waste any time. And so he goes immediately into the text of what he wants to communicate. It's interesting, as we look at the opening of this book, that the uh, word order in the English has been changed somewhat from the Greek. The Greek actually begins with a little rhyming riddle, as a matter of fact. It sounds something like this. Palumeros kai palotropos. That is to say, 
in diverse, in sundry times and in diverse manners. And then comes the word palai, which means in time past. So if we read this in the Greek according to word order, it would read like this, who at sundry times and in diverse manners in time past, God spake unto the fathers by the prophets. Now I think the reason that that's put that way in the Greece is to put God next to speak, next to spake, God spake. That's the first concept I want to get across to you today. God spoke. In old times he spoke to the fathers by the prophets. He spoke to them directly. He's about to tell us in our time he's going to speak to us through his son. But do you know, do you know that if God did not choose to speak to us, we would really know nothing about him? The man under the curse of sin has no ability to search, explore, and find out the supernatural. If you go from this place, perhaps you're a young person, you grew up in the church, you've always been taught the Bible, you think, oh, I need to look into this. I need to search it out. I need to search out the supernatural realm to see if this is the realm I really should be in. You're headed for trouble. Because the Bible is the revealed truth of God. And there is no way we could have this Bible except that God chose to reveal himself to us. And he did it at various times in different ways in the past to the fathers through the prophets. Uh, the supernatural realm is not open to us. It's a dangerous place for us to go. We are blinded of the danger of spiritual realities. We are blinded by the curse of sin to make right decisions without the leadership of God. And we need to understand that God has revealed himself in the scriptures. He has revealed himself at sundry times. This actually means that he's revealed himself in fragmentary way and in many parts by saying it different, many different times. It's saying in essence that there was a segment given here and a segment here and a segment there and a segment somewhere else. God spoke to Adam as they walked in the garden. God spoke to Adam as he gave the curse to Adam. Uh, God spoke to Noah, called him out to build the ship. What's kind of interesting, I think, is that uh, there's no record of God speaking to anyone between the curse of Adam and the call of Noah. Enoch, perhaps during that time, went up, was translated into heaven, but there's no record of God speaking to man during that time. Does that fit into what we've learned about dispensations? Remember the second dispensation which followed the Adamic curse was called, everybody, the dispensation of? Conscience, good. A little slow, but you had it. He uh, took man who said he would be like God's if he disobeyed God and did his own thing. And he just turned him loose to his own conscience, and you know where it ended up. God didn't speak. He didn't intervene. Stayed out of the way, and he let man do his thing. And man nearly destroyed the race. Well, God spoke to Adam. God spoke to Noah. God spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses. And all these were very significant persons in the Old Testament, many of them uh, individuals who were associated with the major covenants that we talked about. But he not only spoke to many different individuals in a fragmentary way, he also spoke to them in many diverse ways. But before we go there, I'll just say this. God did not call a conference and give all his revelation at one time. 
He gave it in bits and pieces, here and there, through different individuals at different times under different circumstances. A little here, a little there. He, he worked it into the fiber of this world uh, through his prophets who revealed God's truth to the fathers, our fathers. Our, our, their natural fathers, our spiritual fathers. And so Revelation was progressive. We come across that concept again. All these little fragments started adding up. You know, uh, Job has indication that he had revelation directly from God. And then we find it from these other individuals. It wasn't until Moses that somebody took that and all took it and put it together and cataloged it into scripture. Uh, Job wrote the book of Job probably first in the canon. But next came Moses and the Pentateuch, the five books of the Pentateuch. So God gave revelation in many different places in many different times. But he also did it in many different ways, diverse manners. Uh, we all think differently. And one of the challenges of teaching our children is understanding how they learn. Different children learn in radically different ways. Frequently, radically different from what we learned. That's when it's really hard. You can't teach them the way you innately want to teach them because that's the way you learn. You have to figure out how they learn. God, in his revelation, has chosen so many different manners in which to reveal himself. Just think about it with me for a moment. He uh, spoke directly to Adam. He used his voice to talk to people, God's generator voice. He, he was one who uh, gave visions to people. A vision is when you see some, something acted out before you in your wake. He gave dreams to some people. That's the same thing when you're asleep. He also uh, appeared to Moses in a burning bush. That got Moses' attention. And with Jacob, he wrestled him all night to try to get truth across to him. There are so many different ways. To Abraham, he appeared as a man, a theophany. As the angel of the Lord to different individuals. And uh, there at the ascension, he appeared, he, he didn't appear, but he sent his angels to appear and communicate to them that as Jesus had gone, so he would come back. Multitude, variety of ways in which God communicated to man. Symbols in the prophecy. Psalms, songs, singing psalms. Proverbs, short little pithy sayings. Uh, all sorts of, the burning mountain of Sinai to convey his holiness in many fragmentary times in many different ways God spoke and you know why that is because no matter how you are you can learn maybe you may have someone to help you read but nowadays that's not a big issue I mean you can get it a number of different ways read to you if you need it that way but as you read it, you'll find God reveals himself in a multitude of different ways over many different times. And he's spoken to the fathers by the prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we read in 2 Peter, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, it was in words that were inspired, that were infallible. But it was in words. It was in words. A new day is coming. 
things aren't always the way they used to be. And so we look at the next verse and we find hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Now last days is a trigger phrase in the Bible because in the Old Testament the term last days to a Jew, to a Hebrew, would be most likely one reading this book of who was directed to it first. Last days referred to the days of Messiah. The days when things would start to change. The days when God would come and judge the sin of the world, called the tribulation seven years, and then destroy this heavens and earth, not that, not that, then rejuvenate this heavens and earth and, and have a thousand year kingdom upon the earth. Last days was also a term applied to the church. We live in the last days. Well, how can it be the last days when it's been 2,000 years? Well, this is how it's the last days. Any moment or any day in that 2,000 years, the Lord could have come and raptured the church and begun that period of time which would introduce the Messianic kingdom. So in a very real sense, the whole church age is the last days because we don't know when God is going to return. He could return at any time. I, over my lifetime of studying scripture, have... Uh, struggled to understand when the day of the Lord begins. We know it ends when the heavens and earth are destroyed by fire because we're told that in 2 Peter, and the day of God begins. But when does the day of the Lord begin? Well, I've come to the conclusion that if you're an Old Testament Jew living in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. when Babylon came and invaded the city, and tore up the people and started burning down the buildings, that was the day of the Lord for you. You just entered the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God intervenes in judgment. And so that's not our point here. It's the same concept, though, as last days. Last days hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. His Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is a term that speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, and puts him as an equal to his father, but yet having subjected himself to his father to become the savior of mankind. He has spoken to us by his son. We, uh, in the past, have been spoken to by God's revealed word, but the messengers often were very feeble. Often they didn't match up to the purity and infallibility of the word, but God through them transmitted truth. But now in these last days, as reflected in Micah chapter 4, verse 1, in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established on top of the hills. That's speaking of the beginning of the millennial kingdom. He has spoken to us by his son. What a contrast that is. In this text, if you look at your Bible, it says, Hath in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he hath made the worlds. Uh, the his there is supplied. You notice that that's, that's supplied in the text. It's in italics, which means the translator supplied it to complete the thought. And uh, it does complete the thought. It is God's son. But if you leave it, has given, spoken unto us by son, it emphasizes the glory, the, the quality of the individual. His son, which is perfectly true, represents his sonship with the Father. Just son represents the quality of his, of his person. It's nice to have words, but you can't interact with words 
You can't see how words respond to different situations. You can't see how words react emotionally to various circumstances. But with a person, it's quite different. I thought a comparison that might help us to understand this a little bit is uh, the press secretary for the White House. Uh, boy, that individual takes the heat. Uh, they're ripped up and ripped down, but they represent the president. And they're asked questions and they have to respond. And the things that they say and sometimes don't say generate other questions. And there's interaction there that allows for communication of truth. And, that, and that's the way it was with the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came down on this earth as a person, as a man, and he interacted with people and situations and circumstances and problems and successes and joys and sorrows, we saw something before our eyes that we could relate to that was different than just having the words. The supreme revelation of God was in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. And these all, having attained a good report through faith, received not the promise. That's a reference to the Old Testament saints who pressed on, but before the promise came, which was Jesus Christ, they were martyred. And so the, the promise was never fulfilled in their lives. And now in our lives, we see the fulfillment of that promise, and that completes God's overall work. They had their purpose in time, we have our purpose in time. Praise the Lord, I'm in this one, not that one. <laughs> but God revealed himself in his person. And it says here, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Made perfect means made complete. And so God made his program complete by sending his son. Hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. Now, there follow here seven great truths about God's new spokesman that make him incomparable. Let's look at those. First one, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. In the end, when it is all over, Jesus Christ will own everything. Everything. He is the heir. He is appointed the heir. When we think of an heir, oftentimes in these days, a son is an heir, say there's an only son. Uh, he's qualified to be an heir by virtue of his relationship with his parent, his father. And so it is true with Jesus Christ. He was the son of the father. He was an heir by virtue of his relationship to the father. But in our imperfect lives, that situation is often clouded and discouraged because the heir is not the person that he should be. Yes, he's qualified to receive the, the testament because he's his blood son. But he's maybe not behaved himself in such a way that you could trust him with that. Jesus Christ was both an heir by relationship and by performance. He did God's will. He was righteous and God, and God gave him, will give him his inheritance because he is both his relation, his son, and is earned is adequate of it. it. Says in Matthew 20, 18, if you ever thought about this phrase here, Jesus said this now just before the ascension, after the resurrection. He said, All power and all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And he said that 
after his resurrection because he had completed the work that the Father had sent him to do as the heir. He hath been appointed the heir of all things. There are implications there if you're not his. If you don't belong to him, you're not a part of the future with him. By whom also he made the worlds. And if you want to be God, you got to be the creator. And not just the creator, but the creator out of nothing. Jeremiah makes a tremendous statement in chapter 10 when he says this in just three verses, three or four verses. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble, and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom, and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. That's an interesting sequence of words there. Power, wisdom, discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth to make his lightnings with rain and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. I was reading a devotional book one time, and he used uh, rain as a subject of contemplating God and did it in a scientific way. It talked about uh, a rainstorm and how much water had to be absorbed from the ocean into the air, the weight of that water, which then blew over the land and fell down upon the earth. The power, the power and the, the magnitude of what takes place and what we just casually observe as a thunderstorm is unbelievable. It's amazing that that much water could be moved in that way from the ocean or from bodies of water where it's evaporated to where it's fallen as rain. He is the one who causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. The Apostle John put it like this, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was the creator. For by him, Colossians, were all things created, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. That, that goes far beyond the physical universe. He controls invisible things. He controls thrones, dominions, positions of power. Well, it goes on in verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, the brightness of his glory, he, uh, when we look upon him, we see God. What is glory anyway? Glory is attention, public attention, that's given to someone for who they are or what they do. And Jesus Christ came as a man upon this earth, and he received the attention of uh, the, known, the, the, the whole area in, in which he lived at that time. I was trying to think of how I could illustrate that, and uh, I had something come up on the way to church this morning. How do you, how, this doesn't sound like it's going to be connected, but you stay with me a minute. 
How many of you know the song, All I Want for Christmas is a Hippopotamus? I just see two or three of you. My son Lawrence, despite his lawyer image, every Christmas has to play that song when he goes to sleep at night. In fact, it was so bad that the nieces and nephews bought him a hippopotamus stuffed animal that, uh, that in fact played the song the way he wrote it. This is a little bit unorthodox, but see if you can hear this. This isn't working. Is it? Yeah. Sorry, no, I, so. if I can turn it off. I'm not gonna let you listen to the whole thing. <laughs> that was sung by a 10-year-old girl, and she ended up singing on the radio, and that was 1953. Television was just coming in. It's got her picture there singing it. You can see it on YouTube. Uh, but it started growing and growing in more attention, and uh, she became uh, an instant star overnight. She ended up on Ed Sullivan, of course, you guys, most of you people don't know who Ed Sullivan is. And all sorts of uh, national shows. And her whole life changed. As she put it, there, there happened to be by accident, you know, sometimes this happens, it plays the next video in line, which I hadn't intended to listen to, but it came on. And it was this young girl today, who's an, a big an adult woman, going back and telling about her experience. And it got, it got so bad that she couldn't go to the grocery store. She couldn't go to school anymore, like a normal kid did, because she'd be mobbed. They had to change her whole lifestyle because of the attention that came to her as a result of I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas. She became, she became filled with glory. She received all this attention. That, that was glory, attention being brought to her for singing the song. Now, that's a very, a very crude, uh, minor description of it. But when Jesus Christ appeared on the earth and he healed the sick and had the wisdom that he was known for when he spoke with the doctors in the, in the temple. And he was the person he was. It brought attention. It brought glory to him. It brought glory to him, who being the brightness of his glory. And the attention and the glory that he got was a reflection of God's glory as he came and represented God and was, well, here, here we go to the next phrase, the express image of his person. The express image of his person means it's like a stamp, you know. Well, my, my wife used to have a, a stamp when she'd send me a note when we were dating, uh, and she would put a little wax on the back and put this stamp in it, and it made an impression on it, uh, an exact impression of who God is portrayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Parallel text is Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. He is the brightness of his glory. He is the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, the physical laws of nature. The, uh, you probably heard this as a popular illustration that's used for this. And I don't have all the scientific numbers. But if the tilt of the earth weren't exactly the way it is, and if the rotation of the earth weren't exactly the way it is, and if the distance from the sun weren't exactly the way it is, we'd all be burned up in a flash. 
but God designed all those things and he controls all those things. It's interesting uh, that studies have, you know, the, the moon is getting closer to the earth every year by some small infinitesimal amount. But when the calculations are done, the moon should, according to evolutionary theory, crashed into the earth a long time ago. But God's plan isn't what evolution teaches. And in God's plan, the numbers make sense. He holds all things. He upholds all things. He sustains them. Now, I, I uphold the maintenance of my home, take care of it, try to keep it in good order, keep, keep it from leaking, keep it looking nice, keeping it serviceable. But boy, it takes a lot of work. And the older I get, the more I feel that work, and I know how much work that is. But does God work to uphold all things? No. It's by the word of his power. He speaks it, and it happens. Psalm 147, verse 15, He sendeth forth his commandment upon earth. His word runneth very swiftly. It, it gets done. He says it, and it happens by his word only. That's an amazing thing. I mean, I can visualize my lawn getting mowed if I look at myself out there on the mower mowing it. But can you imagine just saying, yard be mowed, and it's mowed? By the word of his mouth. By the word of his power. I, I had uh, two girls in my household growing up, and I've overheard discussions different times about bad hair days. Any you ladies ever had a bad hair day? Imagine what it'd be like if God had a bad world day. <laughs> Things would be a mess. God upholds all things by the word of his power. Well, look down through these. Just take your Bible. Look down through these just a moment before we go on. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. But look at the next one when he had by himself purged our sins. Of all the things that the Son does, that's the most amazing. Of all the things that the Son does that make him God, that make him infinitely high above us, that is an amazing thing. Because in order to purge our sins, he had to come down and become a man and not only become a man in order to be able to die, but then to die on the cross. Those familiar words, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery, not a thing to be grasped, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You know, the Father orchestrated all that happened to him as he paid the sin penalty for mankind. And as it came to him, he accepted it. He was obedient unto death. And Messiah was put on a cross to the Jews 
remember our, our audience here, for a Messiah, the Messiah to be put on a Gentile cross was unthinkable that that could possibly ever happen. It was a tremendous stumbling block. And yet it had to happen because only that way could our sins be paid for. One of the most, I mentioned it different times before, I'll probably mention it again. One, one of the things in Isaiah that made the biggest impression on me was in the latter chapters there, chapter 59, so forth, that I've got here, is that, God, that the Lord looked down. This is kind of like a human perspective because it's not like he caught God by surprise. But as the Lord looked down, he saw that there was no solution to man's problem unless he provided one. That if he just went on status quo, he'd have to destroy everything he created. The only way he could save it is if he intervened and if he sent his son. Listen to Isaiah 59. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. What that phrase is saying is that his arm, his power, brought the salvation of his children, of his created children, to him. It didn't bring him salvation. He's already saved. It means, listen here to what it says, therefore his arm, by his power, by his action, by his intervention, brought salvation unto him, that's the creature who was lost. And his righteousness, it sustained him. You think of that as, he, as in Christ's imputed righteousness in the New Testament. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a an helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. Whenever God comes to reward the righteous, there must follow with it the destruction and punishment of the wicked. That's why it's not so easy to say sometimes, Lord, come, come quickly. Because when you say that, just remember, you may be bringing salvation to you and your saved friends, but you are bringing damnation and judgment on the rest of the world who do not know him. For he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, according he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When he, when he enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up the standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion and into them and turn from the transgression of Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them. This is the kingdom covenant. Covenant with them, covenant with Israel, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth forever. Amen. By his own arm he brought us salvation and purged us of our sins. You know, the word purged there is one in English, but it's two in Greek. And it means literally to make clean. It's, it's the word to make and the word clean in the Greek language, to make clean. He made us clean. And then you know what he did? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, uh, think of that for a moment here. He, when he died on the cross, he didn't take our sin and bear it and keep it. He couldn't have sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
it was taken away. That's because he is God. And he paid the full price for all mankind's sin, such that it was expiated. It was taken away. And the Father set him down at his own right hand. It was a sign of honor. It was a sign of his authority. It was a sign that he was finished with the work. He sat down to rest. It was a sign that he is there now to intercede for us. I don't have time to go through all those. I want to close with something else. But you can look at them there. He is at the right hand of the Father. But as we close, I'd like you to turn back to the first page. I want to, I want to challenge you this morning to examine yourself in light of these groups of people that we're addressing in the book of Hebrews. There are, of course, Christian believers who know and are serving the Lord faithfully. But let's look at these three groups here. Hebrew Christians who were persecuted. And because of the persecution, or maybe because of other things that aren't necessarily persecution, just you know, the story of the seeds and the sower, the, the weeds come up, different things interfere. They're weak in the Lord. We see that illustrated here. If you turn to these verses, let's look at chapter 10 of Hebrews. That's tell me I'm supposed to stop. Okay. I don't pay attention. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great flight of afflictions. Partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. Persecution came. Now, people reacted in different ways. Here's one reaction, verse 34. And ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Those were the, the believers who persevered even under persecution, who were strong, faithful believers. But then in chapter 5, there's a reference made to another group of believers who apparently responded in a different way. Chapter 5, verse 12, it says, For when, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again what be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. In other words, he's saying here, you had the opportunity to grow, but you didn't grow. You should be a teacher now, but you're still a student because you've been weak and not pursued the faith. I'd like for us to examine ourselves this morning. Are you not all you should be? Because for whatever reason, You've not pursued the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul? Have you relented under persecution or maybe just hard times or maybe just laziness and are not all today what you should be? That was the first group of Hebrew believers that he was addressing here. Second group, Hebrew non-Christians who are intellectually convinced. You know, people come and they read the scriptures and they say, oh, I think it makes a lot of sense. You don't, you don't get saved by knowing what the scriptures say. You get saved by putting your trust in the Savior who gave us the scriptures. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
3.4. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. What's he speaking to? He's speaking to people who've heard the gospel, who've heard these things, and he's admonishing them. He says, listen, therefore, we ought to give more earnest heed. You ought to give more attention, more attention, more reaction to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. See, these are people who believe what they've been told. But he says if you neglect it or if you don't earnestly heed it, it's not going to do you any good. It's going to be a great trouble to you. So there are believers who say, yeah, I believe all that. You, you run, if you, if you don't much, I'll Wednesday people, you see, you run into this all the time. They, they believe the facts of the gospel, the facts of the Bible, but they haven't put their trust in Christ. Are you in that group? You're comfortable here today because you believe all these things we're teaching, but have you really put your trust in Christ? And then there's a third group. The third group are Hebrews who are, who are not believers. They, uh, they are not convinced of the truth. And if we turn to chapter 9, look at these verses with me, verses 14 and 15. Start in 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats, we're talking to a, a Jew, okay? For if he believes, he, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, they believe that. How much more shall the blood of Christ, they haven't accepted that, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15, and for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, the church new covenant, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In other words, what he's saying is Christ is better. And we have an individual here who uh, is clinging to the old law code and not looking to Christ, who is better. Are you here today and you're clinging to something? Something you treasure, something you value, something that's been a big part of your life, like this has been a big part of this Jewish individual, this Jewish man's life. Verse 13, blood bulls and goats, he's purifying the flesh. He's not willing to give it up to move on. What's holding you back if you've not made a decision for Christ? We live in the last days. And the last days are the last days because at any moment, Christ could come. And remember, when Christ comes to reward the righteous, there will come judgment on the wicked. Father in heaven, thank you for these wonderful words in the opening verses of Hebrews. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through those words this morning. Whatever our situation may be, that we might draw closer to the Lord, whether it be a need for revival in our lives 
for salvation, Lord. Work out that in each individual's life that you may be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.